Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this episode, we are going to be talking about Season 2 of Continuum. We talked about the first season in a previous episode. Just to, to recap, the premise is a, a bunch of terrorists, eight terrorists from the future, and a policeman or a policewoman uh, come back from about 65 years in the future to the present day, and uh, well, sci-fi wackiness ensues. I would uh. argue that's the premise of season one. By season two, we've lost a few terrorists to presumably death. Okay, so going forward, let's be clear on this, that we're going to have... Spoilers uh, for Season 1 galore, because it's over, it's done with. If you haven't listened to that and are curious about the show, we've got a spoiler-free section of the the Continuum Season 1 podcast. We're going to go a little ways into this uh, uh, spoiler-free, then we're going to go no-holds-barred heavy spoilers and stuff, because a lot happens in Season 2. Definitely, and if you haven't watched Season 1 yet, please go watch Season 1 and then come back and listen to this. If you haven't watched Season 2 yet, you're good to listen for a while. Right, because again, we're going to stay spoiler-free. Now joining me, of course, is, is Kay Kellum, uh, same person who joined me on the uh, Continuum Season 1 uh, discussion. Now coming out of Season 1, I think they set certain expectations. I think they planted certain seeds. Now, from my perspective, the big expectation was the message from the future, from future Alec to young Alec, what was in that, what was going to happen. And then I felt with the introduction of Jason, the mention of Mr. Escher, the the freelancers, uh, I think there were one or two other people he may have mentioned or whatever. It basically put the picture a lot wider than just the group of people who time-traveled at the beginning of Season 1. He threw out a few other terms. He gave you the idea it's more than just the people you're aware of. And if you kept in mind from season one, when we were in the execution chamber, there were more than just the eight convicts and Kira. There were that outer ring of guards and Elena. Yes. So there uh, was always more people who could have been sent back in time. As Jason said, he was on a different floor of the building, but he was by the power supply, making sure power went to the execution chamber. Exactly. And it's nice how the end of season one kind of came full circle with certain aspects. Um, and it showed that with the, the first season, they, they knew at the beginning where they were going to end up. How much they'd scripted out, I don't know. Um, but it set certain expectations in my mind in, ser- in terms of the tightness of the storytelling, the cohesiveness of the storytelling. There are bookends on the show that give you the feeling there's a plan, they know where A and Z are, and whether or not they know a precise outline of how they're going to get between these points, they know what they are. Well, I, I like to, to use the term premeditated storytelling. They're not just winging it and making it up as they go. Now, from a, a comic reader point of view, where it's the ongoing saga, the ongoing titles, again, much like a TV show that's going for the, the indefinite future, it's easy for writers to fall into 
that that rhythm of okay I just got to get this episode out this issue out this installment out and just I'll pick up the pieces next time and and things can kind of meander zigzag flip-flop and I don't think with season one we had that really happen with season two I would say it meandered it lost I don't say it lost direction it was telling a bigger story a bigger story that drifted a little further from that set precise course they took a few side roads they showed you a little more of the countryside along the way to getting there they had enough things in play that sometimes they had to put a particular plot line or something on the back burner for a couple of weeks and I felt that particularly in the middle of season two and what they were telling was worth telling was good stuff, but I think the way they had set up at the beginning of the season, I had certain expectation of what was going to happen through the middle of that season. They went somewhere a little different than that. It worked out well. They also brought in a few things, uh, particularly with the relationship between Julian and young Alec, that I really enjoyed. I think Julian really got a, a, a much better plot line and arc this season than first season. They did far better with that relationship than I ever expected. I honestly thought after season one, Julian could be effectively written out for this season and we wouldn't notice. He... I was kind of expecting that, particularly from the way season two started. And there were enough change of scenery sorts of things and kind of a new status quo for some characters that I thought a few of the peripheral ones from first season, it's like, okay, we've done what we needed to do with them. We may touch on them, but they're not major players. And they did turn out to be major players. Yeah. We also introduced a couple of new ones this season, too. We saw more of Alec and Julian's mom than I thought we would see. Julian's mom was another one I thought was definitely going to get written out. Um, yeah. There again, they, they used a lot of their characters a lot better than I dared hope for. And so many of their characters were true to their hearts. You knew what the core of this character was. And even as the characters are growing and changing, for the most part, they're staying true to that core. And I really enjoy seeing that. Well, and like you said, they grow and they evolve. They don't flip-flop. Because there are a couple over the course of Season 2 change considerably. But it was one of those that we're seeing it happen slowly and... It's kind of the slippery slope, which is, I think, part of what the whole show was about. It's a time travel story where the the fundamental question is, were these people sent back to change history or to make sure it happened how they want it to happen? Who sent them back? Whose agendas are there? Because there are multiple agendas. Who's working towards maintaining it? Who's working towards subverting the future? And how do you know who's doing, who's on the right, who's... I don't want to say who's on the right side, but who is on the moral side of right. Yes. Because I really liked how, in season two, they played around with certain questions of, you know, is is Julian, is Liberate, are these characters truly terrorists, or are they rebelling against something that needs rebelling against? Or, you know, things are not black and white. There was a moral quandary throughout the season. Are they terrorists or are they George Washington? Are they are freedom they fighters? Yes. Terrorists or are they Hitler? Who are they in relation to a figure that we, with 2020 hindsight, know the truth or what we perceive to be the truth of? Well, and it comes down to history is written by the victors sometimes, and how history judges somebody, uh, judges people, is, is perspective. Too true. And the whole show is about consequences. And so often they are seeing the immediate consequences of actions 
they're trying to guess at the consequences of actions, and we have a few characters who in their hearts believe they know the distant consequences, the 65 years from now consequences of actions. But in truth, what they know is what in their continuum or their timeline is a truth 65 years from now, and what they're assuming is the consequences if this is what really happened 65 years in their past. Well, and it comes down to the short game versus the long game. Are you trying to, to maintain, such as Kira seems to be at times, uh, certainly during first season, of maintaining the future status quo so her family will be there if she can get back to them, or the short-term do-the-right-thing consequences? And it provides a very interesting dynamic, both for the characters and for the show, and even if, if characters are in alignment with what the end goal is, certainly at the beginning of Season 2 in the early episodes, we see how fundamentally different certain characters are trying to go about those end goals. Um, well, and one of the things I really wanted out of Season 2, because I was convinced from the pilot episode in the execution chamber especially, but by the end of the pilot episode for certain, I was sure old Alec had sent Kira back deliberately, that he made a conscious choice to put her there and make sure she was one of the time travelers. It's, I wanted to know why. It's interesting how pivotal that scene in the pilot is with the execution chamber and such, not just in terms of it kicking off the whole series, but there are a lot of TV shows and a lot of, of comic titles, you know, a lot of properties where you've got that pivotal moment in the pilot where, okay, this puts them back in time, this kicks the thing off, this is the turning point that starts the story, the key event, that in those other, in a lot of other properties, okay, it happened, it gets referenced, but it, it never gets revisited, never gets harped upon, never gets touched upon. It's kind of a, okay, uh, trying to think of what would be a good example. Um, well, for me, and I know I'm not a comic book reader, I should confess this up front, but for me, when you talk about pivotal moment that makes or breaks a character, as I recall, it's, you know, Batman, the death of his parents, sets the course of his life. But that's literally a moment. That's, what, five minutes out of a lifetime mm -hmm. that could be displayed on a screen if we're watching a movie in, what, 30 seconds? When I went back to the pilot and said, okay, if I wanted to get someone to watch this and whittle it down to just the bare minimum of essential content to make them understand this show, there was 10 minutes. Not just 10 minutes, but 10 pivotal moments that are not just done and over. They, they have reverberations throughout the series. And... I don't want to get too much because we're still in a spoiler-free area of the, the discussion at this point. But that's season one, which is fair game to talk and spoiler-free for season two. And that ten minutes in the pilot, even in season two, you're still thinking back to those ten minutes of the pilot. Well, and a whole new twist was put on that when we get introduced to Jason, who, unbeknownst to, to everyone, was on the floor below. You know, we find out when he gets introduced there at the end of season one. And again, to me, that was a turning point in the series, because up until then, the only time travels we knew of were, were Kira and the eight people, Yeah, uh, a few of which didn't last too long. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting how 
they're able to layer new complexities, new elements into the story without ever violating what had gone before. I never felt in either season that when they added information or added layers of detail that they were fudging or revising something they'd already given us. It's hilarious that there have been essentially none that I am aware of, at least, no retcons. Yes. Retcon, retroactive continuity, which if you think about it, a time travel show is perfectly able to do legitimately. Yes, especially one that is saying there may be altering timelines that we may unknowingly be affecting. Well, I love how the entire how does the timeline work, you know, are did did those people coming back create a new branch? Is it the same timeline? Can they change time? Nobody really knows, so there's a lot of speculation and discussion about that, uh, particularly between Kira and Alec in season one. Um, it's I think fun, you know, uh, discussion, thought, problems, etc. They treat their audience with respect with those conversations, too. They do. They do. And this is something that I could see having a problem potentially with certain viewers just not being able to follow along and really get some of what's going on. Because there are times where it's like, wait a sec, you know, how does the whole timeline really play out? Are they subverting it? Are they changing it? The whole grandfather paradox, things like that. And... There are times that the show tackles that head-on. First season with Do They Kill, you know, uh, Kagami's uh, mother, mother before he's born, while she's pregnant with him, etc., um, and things of that nature. Yeah, there there's so much thought in the show and so many things that it gives you to ponder. And in season two, they just kept giving you more of that. I watched it week by week as it aired. Mm-hmm. And then I was recording all of the episodes so the two of us could sit and watch it as a marathon. Now, I did not watch week by week. I only did the marathon with you, which we just did this week. I'm glad I did because I felt there were a few things, again, near the early middle part of the season, where a couple of things were kind of put on the back burner so they could bring other things to the forefront. And the time between something getting set up, a key event happening, and then coming back to it, would be three or four episodes sometimes. It definitely felt stronger in the marathon than it felt week by week. I think I would have had problems remembering where we'd left off with certain storylines by the time they came back. In the week by week viewing, there were times when I lost track of where where on the far shore of this river am I trying to get to. Well, now you were also saying that this is a, a sci-fi channel show. But as we can tell, when they they silence out the profanity and such, it was not made specifically for sci-fi. Yeah, this, this is something that always amuses me. With like they're they're made for sci-fi movies. It's like, you know, if if you targeted it and made it for this channel, you would have known they don't have profanity. Therefore, you wouldn't have put profanity in it. Therefore, you wouldn't need it edit out. Anyways, so this is clearly something that was done originally, I believe, for Canada's Showcase Channel. Yes, I. I say time and again in our conversations, if I lived in Canada, I would have to have Showcase as a station I could tune into, and I almost wish I lived up in Canada so I could tune into Showcase. From what I've seen of what's coming out of there, it's good stuff. It is. And if this is indicative of standard quality, it's pretty impressive, because I think they've 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 got strong writing, strong... Uh, visual effects, strong actors. Now, one of the things that I was feeling as I was watching it week by week, and early in the season, 
I was saying, what's going on with Betty? She seems indecisive. So I went to the showcase website to see, is there something I'm missing that the Canadians are seeing? And sure enough, there was. The Canadians were getting to vote. Do you want Betty to be sympathetic to liberate? Or do you think she's sympathetic to a group called One Future Now? Now, I can say this in the no spoilers section because One Future Now is never mentioned in the show. This is one of the cases where they're trying to, I think, do a transmedia sort of a thing. And it's got some benefits, it's got some downsides. They need to have a certain lag time to get the episode aired, get the response, and then adjust to the response. And that means certain things take a little longer to tell. And while I think that's a cool idea to a degree, I don't think it benefited the series. I think if they hadn't had that approach and that distraction, I think we would have gotten a tighter uh, sequence of episodes. I think Betty's entire arc and storyline would have been stronger if that hadn't been going on, or if somehow, and I don't know how, could have been done better. And I wish I did know some how that I could toss out there and suggest. Um, the idea in the voting, from what I could tell, because I did go try watching the videos and participating, was, you know, this is the situation. Do you agree with Liberate's violent response or One Future Now's very idealized and philosophical response? Which do you think Betty should sympathize with? Well, and that makes sense because one of the, the fundamental uh, discussion points around the show is... Are you better off convincing people through ideas or through force and, and scare tactics? And they put legit cases behind both sides, you know? It's, um, it's I, a, I like how they're exploring those ideas. It's a thinking man's show or a thinking person's show. Yeah. And they do a very good job with it. And knowing that about what was going on up in Canada for the viewers and what was going on with Betty... I'm not as disappointed in the Betty arc as I would be if I was unaware of it. To me, that one wasn't even the arc that was kind of a little frustrating for me. But to get into that, I think we need to go into spoilers. And let's go on into spoilers, then. All right, so at this point, we're going to say that we're drawing the line, and if you have not watched the uh, the second season, you might want to either do that or just accept that we're going to spoil aspects of it from here on forward. Oh, heck, we're going to spoil the whole season in case you didn't know every single character. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, we're actually going to go up and talk about the, the way the whole season ends because it was a doozy. But before we get there, the season starts out with Liberate going through a little bit of a, a, a crisis of identity or, or whatever. Kagami has died at the end of the first season, as we know. And uh, Sonya and Travis are having a, uh, a discussion on uh, who's going to lead uh, Liberate with, uh, with Sonya pointing a gun at Travis. And the, the, the scene cut there had an unfortunate sound bite that sounded an awful lot like a gunshot. Now, it's either unfortunate or spectacular editing, the way that elevator door slammed like a gunshot and you were left to think, Whoa, was that one very explosive argument. Well, as it turns out, we, we get back to it in the first episode of the second season. They talk for a little bit, and then she shoots him three times or something. Um, That may have been more like until the gun ran out of bullets. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. It was decisive. It was a bit of a lover's spat. And this essentially splits 
the remaining faction of Liberate, which at this point is Travis, um, Sonya, Lucas, and uh, Garza. Because Kagami has, has died in the, the building blast. Chen was killed off, and I forget what the other guy's name was from the early part of the first season. Yes, and the other guy had died... And then, of course, in... the, the eighth Liberate member was Kellogg, who's still floating yes. about. The other guy had died in the pilot in the very first fight. Yeah. Which is why I can't think of his name. And I just, I want to say again that Kagami in the Blaze of Glory, uh, Tony Amandala rocked that role. And Kagami is brought up throughout this season. Not as much as I hoped. But he's but enough still to keep his character in play. a lingering influence, and I really think that was an incredibly strong role for Tony Amendola. Now, we follow Tony Amendola in uh, Stargate SG-1, where he played Braytac. Uh, great actor. We've met him a time or two at uh, conventions. A wonderful guy. He does a scarily believable uh, terrorist cult leader. Yeah. He um, he manages the charisma, and he's the one in season one who first brings up this change their minds, and that's where the power lies. Well, it's interesting that Sonya and Lucas are going down a more uh, peaceful, passive mind game campaign, if you will. Whereas Travis and Garza, the more militants, are going much more blaze of glory, shoot the guns, get the mobsters on your side sort of a thing. Um, and there were a couple of scenes that were, over the course of the season, a little gory or whatever, um, where, where Travis is establishing his power base. But the first couple episodes were so hot and heavy on that aspect. To then have two or three episodes in a row where none of those four really show up to any major degree other than a scene or two, what? if that. They didn't show up in a single scene in at least one, maybe two episodes. They weren't mentioned even, I don't think they were even in news flashes on TV screens in the background. And that's what disappointed me was if we had seen some mention that their campaign of violence and mental terror, if you were, will was still going on. They did better with that at the end of the season because there were times where the characters were not front and center, but they were on the, the, the police board or whatever with the photos, or they were at least getting referenced a bit more. And it was interesting because one of those couple of episodes in the, the early middle of the season was when Kira's onboard uh, therapist kicks in. And uh, it, the, the actor who, who did that, I forget his name, was in... Um, Smallville as um, Emil Hamilton and was in Battlestar Galactica as... I'm forgetting the character's name and the actor's name, and I apologize for that. He did a great job both in those roles and here. He was fantastic as the therapist, and he took the role on with, I want to say, a conviction. He was genuinely trying to help the character reconcile you're out of time and you have to adapt or the stress will destroy you. Well, it takes a little while for him to realize they're out of time. And I don't know that he ever fully goes with that, but it's like... He gets on board at the end. He gets on board with helping Kira, but I don't know that he flat out acknowledges, yes, we're stuck in the past. 
I think he finally acknowledges it after the whole, I can't get through to anybody. I can't get through to a CPS advisor. None of my systems will connect outside. The only person I can make contact with is Alex Sadler. Well, but that's what baffles him at first. But I talked to Alex Sadler, my creator. He's confused. He's puzzled. He thinks it's it's uh, hallucination or, or schizophrenia on her part. And then he quickly drops that when there's enough evidence to say, well, even if it's a hallucination, it's real enough to convince me, so we'll go with it. I thought that was a wonderful episode. I would love to see that character brought back, because there there have got to be times moving forward where she's got to be wondering about her sanity and just needing someone to talk it all through with. Mm-hmm. Now, one of yeah. the things that was a good turning point in this season was Kira's relationship with Carlos, her partner. And it got pretty tense in a number of areas during the season of, you know, can he trust her? Can he not? And then she finally just opens up and explains everything to him. Yeah. Granted, at that point, she has been captured by a serial killer. She has already exhibited knowledge she should not have had, but since he's from the future, had. She is paralyzed, yet has still taken down the killer. Oh, now that was beautiful. And she took down the killer in a way we'd seen her take someone else down before. Yes, it played fair, and and amazingly so, but with Carlos coming into that situation where there is, like, no way she could have done what she obviously just did. And it didn't involve liberate. Yes. But it it was one of those things where he had to be believing what he was seeing and hearing. And he flat out pulls the the whole Sherlock Holmes line of, once you've eliminated the the, the I forget the, the, the exact once quote. you've uh, eliminated the impossible once you've eliminated the impossible whatever else remains no matter how improbable must be the truth that's it yeah um it was a nice line it was well done and but it's an episode that would not have worked if it had been a case involving liberate because up until then. Everything she knew from the future involved Deliberate, which is why she seemed like the mole. Well, and because she was there when a number of them were captured and at their execution, she knew who those guys were pretty well, and that stuff was loaded in her her onboard computer. Whereas other random cases from the time, not so much. It was fun to see how their partnership evolved, how their camaraderie and how their interaction evolved, particularly once Carlos understood how she was getting all this stuff. And once he realizes, you know, the mythical Section 6 is this 18-year-old guy, you know, just hacking at a computer, and he's getting really fast information. It's like, well, I'll give him credit. He's good sort of a thing. It was fun, and it was a, a really great season arc. It was. For for Carlos, because he went to where by the end of the season, his, I don't want to say his morals had been compromised, but, I mean, he turns in his badge because he realizes even though all he's wanted to do is be a cop and protect people, that's not what the cops are currently doing at that division. They've become a bit of a police state, and what they're doing is wrong, and he sees that. And Kira has given him reason to fear for the future of police. Yes. And I loved the bit at the end of the the season where uh, uh, Dylan, the head of that division, although he got bounced out for a bit and came back, um, is going through their new procedures book, and it's CPS, City Protection Service, whereas it's Corporate Protection Service in the future, which is what Kira is a member of. Yeah. So she's both one of the future most that we've seen, at least as far as we know, um, and one of the earliest yeah. that we've seen, which is kind of ironic. Um, they did some fun stuff with that, and 
how the, the, the cops went from being policemen to being aggressive to you're living in a police state, you just may not totally realize it, people are realizing it, uh, showed what a slippery slope the future can be. And I thought that was one of the really powerful aspects of the season is it, it did it in a slow, believable build-up. The only thing that I wish they had taken more time with and done better on screen was Dylan, the Dylan, head of the police. Yeah, he gets pushed out as, as the guy in charge of that division, uh, that precinct or whatever. Gets replaced, we get the whole witch hunt, who's the mole, that kind of stuff. He is seen, I think, the one time with Mr. Escher. Over at Pyron, over which at Pyron. we know is a fort, is a future major corporation, but here it's also a corporation that Escher is heading. And Escher already has some mystery around him by this point. Yeah. And then next time we see Dylan, he's coming back, uh, and he's now in charge of the division again, and Pyron is, is apparently separately funding that division. They've yeah. got their own budget, their own mandate, um, and it it went pretty quick into the more police statish mentality there. I agree. That was one of the points where I think they should have built that up a little bit better, a little bit smoother. Yeah. But Dylan was always eager to do what it took to close the case, but he went from wanting to get it right and close the case and being what seemed to be a very good and determined cop to being a over-the-top, if we have to beat it out of them, that's okay. They went from bending the rules to flat-out breaking them. And that, that didn't work well for one of the cops, particularly when he was sent into question Garza. The minute the guy was sent into question Garza, it's like, he's, he's not coming out of the room in one piece. But I gotta admit, I was laughing my head off when she went to pull out what she used to pick the locks because they played fair on that. Yes, they set up the lock picks earlier in the season, and again, it it's premeditated storytelling. It's like they, they've apparently plotted out the full season. It's like, well, we want to do this later. Well, to make that really play, we should set this up a few episodes earlier, and I love how they do that. There's there's this little hints of foreshadowing. When I watched it week by week, I missed something visual that was literally a handshake. And when we marathoned it, I caught it. Now, which handshake was this? This was the handshake in the future jail cell with the clasping of the hands between Travis and Chen. Okay. And we caught the tattoo ah. between the fingers on Chen. Chen. Okay, I didn't catch that. I didn't catch it the first time. All right, so the tattoos on the fingers. We, we, we hear about the freelancers from Jason in the first season. They become a major force in the second season, and they are identifiable by having little black circular tattoos or whatever in kind of the, the, the gap between the fingers on the hand. They're almost like, uh, I, I they, want... They describe them like birthmark type things. Yeah, but I want to joke that they're like those uh, 1980s uh, micro dot... Yeah, um, exactly. A micro dotish looking thing just oddly placed there. If you're not looking for it, you're not going to spot it. If yeah. you do spot it, you're not going to think about it. But, but if you put it under a microscope, suddenly, whoosh, it's a code. Now, they never say what the code is for or what it says or anything, but those guys go from they're there to they're connected to Escher to they're stealing future bodies to 
at the end of the whole thing... They're collecting all the future bodies that traveled back together at the same time. Well, they're collecting all the future bodies that, that we're aware of, and then maybe one or two others. It, it comes down to they are not the freelancers I think we were led to believe they were. They're time cops. Yeah. And the question is, who do they work for and who set them up? And one of them's fairly familiar. It's Chen from the Execution Chamber. Who seems to have been undercover with Liberate. And it, it begs the question as to, is there a, another bigger agenda going on? And I liked how the season end, uh, that, that scene, is something that we see at the beginning totally out of context at the start of the second season. We're like, what's going on here? Well, and you can't even complain about Chen coming back from the dead because Travis has come back from the dead when Sonia shot him in the first season, first episode of season yeah. two, and he seemed to be dead. So there again, you know, 13 episodes earlier, someone popped back up. So they just keep playing fair and giving you all these oh wow moments. It... it begs the question, though, given how much they expanded the canvas on the second season, given what we know about Escher, how he is young Alex, well, Alex, it doesn't matter if he's young or old, his father, Jason is Alex's son, time travel is, quote-unquote, the, the family, family business. business. Yeah. What does that mean? How does that, that come out? Well, and when the freelancers or time cops, as we're calling them, because well, the freelancers that, is what they're called in the show, though. But yeah. Yes, but they certainly strike me as time cops. The way they gather up and put into cells in one block all the people from the execution chamber and Jason, and I'm pretty sure I don't think we saw Elena in there, but we know they gathered her body up. But that's why I don't think they're gathering necessarily all the people who traveled together. I mean, they're. They're gathering them up, whether they just dump them in one room. I, I don't. I think you may be potentially reading more into it, but you may also be very accurate on that. I don't know. My question is, when did the freelancers come into being since older Alec in the future? We get a lot of scenes building up to the execution stuff. We re-see the, not the entire execution scene, but the key events around that. We see Jason's perspective on it. It's, again, going back to that whole thing of that pivotal event that kicks off the story is a major part of, of, of this season and a major event in the end of the episode, the end of the season and such. Well, and the way they show it, again, they show Kagami and it looks like he deliberately glances towards Kira and glances down at his hand because he wants her to see his piece of the device. He wants her to run closer. Well, and that goes back to first season, a uh, conversation between Kagami and older Julian in jail of, this is what older Alec's plan is, let's come up with our own counter plan. Yes. And the question is, again, agendas. Who's, who's aiming for what? Who's at cross-purposes? Who's not? Who's going to be at cross-purposes and not? Because the way the season ends, I fully expect Kira and the key members of Liberate, Travis, Sonya, Lucas, maybe not Lucas, but Garza, Jason, and Kellogg to all have to work together. Yes. To, to break out of where they're at and go, I'm not well, sure where. And the only thing we know is that they're somewhere that young Alec was able to track Elena's body to that had no GPS signal. Because he was able to open Elena's eyes and see That's right. one of the freelancers there, but not get a GPS signal. 
which goes towards her actually having been in that area, whether it's the same room or the one next door, who knows. Yeah. And when the freelancers took Kira, right before they took her, they made the comment that if they let her go back to the future and prevent Liberate from coming back to the past, she would still be an anomaly. And that's one of those comments they just throw out there. And it has so many possible meanings. Now, what do you think that means? Well, that means either you're supposed to die in the chamber, so we can't let you go back there and live. Fair enough. Or it means you aren't supposed to be in that time period at all. I question that because she's got a full memory. Not that that couldn't have been implanted with the the, the CMI or whatever they call the... the CMR or whatever they call it. I always want to call it a CVI, uh, Cyril Viral Implant or whatever, from uh, Earth Final Conflict. Oh, how funny. And I know that's wrong, but same basic idea. It's tech implanted in your brain. You can remember everything. It's magic, you know, cyber, uh, uh, cerebral tech. But Um, they've shown that memories can be pulled and pushed into it. So her entire life history could be wrong. Yeah. I think it would be hard to have faked the history such that she would remember details about her grandmother true. that turned out to be true in the past. True, but the reason that I keep wondering could she not belong there is because when her memories were tampered with in the first episode of the season is when she remembered being taken to one of these chambers by freelancers that we saw in the end of the season. True, true. The other things that that have me curious about who's in play and who's got what agendas. Her husband in the future clearly knows some of what's going on with with older Alec, but not everything, and knows her mind's had some memories erased, some things like that. He's part and parcel of this, but not necessarily fully willing. It's almost like he's been planted in her life. Yes, and he clearly, in season one, gave the impression that he had to marry her, had to have a life with her, had to have a kid with her. Much like uh, Emily yes. is having with young Alec at Mr. Escher's behest. Yes. And that whole arc played out wonderfully, a little obviously in one or two places where like, she wants to go to the lab really early on. Yes. It's like, oh, I don't trust her. Yes. Um, but she, she, I think, turns out to be trustworthy, even though she did some bad things. Um, and her fate at the end, where she has been killed, we should see that, that camera... Or, uh, Kira made the, uh, the the wrong choice going after the device versus helping her and regrets that. It causes a problem between her and Alec. Young Alec then takes the time device at the end of the season and travels. I love that. He travels. That's a great way to say it because we have no idea where he goes. It's the first time he's ever used it and he's admitted he has no idea how to use it. He's assuming when he gets to the control panel, he'll be able to use it. Well, and it sounded like he had it set up to take her to the future. At least that's what he was telling her. But that was clearly never his plan. And it sounded like he wanted to go back and save Emily. The question is, what did he set the the target coordinates for? And what does that even matter? Did it just take him where it took him? Or did he go where he wanted to? Well, and throughout the season, he's been saying he wanted to see what old Alec was like. Well, he also wanted to see what his father was like. Very true. So there are a lot of... Uh, the, the whole se- the next season could open with him going back 10 years, 20 years, 10 days, 10 minutes. I mean, there are a lot of ways it could go. Because he's also a genius. He may have thought a few ways out of this. 
It could go to the past, it could go to the future, and quite frankly, I'd be happy either way. That's what's so good about what they've written. Well, there's one other character that I think is going to turn out to have an agenda that I think nobody's really thinking about much these days. Sam, Kira's son. Hmm. Sam had to be born. I think he's going to turn out to be who founds the uh, the freelancers to put mm. time right that once went wrong to get his mom back. <laughs> Why do I think you're suddenly talking about Quantum Leap? Oh, that's the key phrase. It also applies to Star Trek Enterprise. Anything that uh, Scott Bakula's in. So he'll play old uh, old Sam, of course. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Which would be a funny thing since he played Sam Beckett in Quantum Leap. Um, they They came back to that character a lot over the course of the season. Particularly in the Psychoval episode. They used him beautifully there. Oh, wonderfully. But it was always, I'm never going to see my son, not, I'm never going to see my son and my husband. The husband gets mentioned, but is a much lesser thing than the son. Making me think that, that older Sam is going to be relevant down the line. Yeah. And it comes down to the whole time travel being the Sadler family business. How does that play out? I mean, they, they did some wonderful stuff with... The, the factions of Liberate early on, the whole witch hunt for the mole, the whole bit with Gartner. You know, Kellogg makes a comment in the first episode of the season that Liberate has three different angles it goes at things from. It goes at the mind, it goes at the military angle, and it takes the PR, the marketing angle. And I think during the season, they did that. They Yeah took all three approaches and they I don't want to say they attacked their audience with them but they they launched attacks at every level and showed their audience what could be done in each way well and it begs the question of if those captured at the end again the Travis uh Sonya Kira Jason uh Kellogg who else did we definitely see in the room Garza Garza um and we've been told Lucas will be retrieved. Arrangements have been made. He's currently in a psych ward. And now that's but, in... But if those, those, just those people get escape somehow, you've got people who can do the military, who can do the, the psych, who can do the con, the, the PR type aspects, um, who've, who've got the police knowledge, the military knowledge. I mean, they've got an incredibly well-rounded team there. They need Lucas to have the tech side of things. Um, although you could argue Jason could fill that void. So yeah. it, it opens up a ton of, of story potential with that. And are they going to be working at cross-purposes to the, the freelancers? Are they going to get co-opted by the freelancers? Is there a bigger agenda going on? Is there a biggest cam bigger canvas the story's playing out on? Because Chen mentions, well, in this continuum. Yes. And it's like, are there multiple timelines? Are there multiple Kira's, Chen's, Lucas's, Travis's, you know, Alex, etc.? Well, if they break out, do they break out into the right continuum? Or do they simply come out at the right time but in a different continuum, yet still find Carlos and Betty on the Randall farm? Well, again, Carlos and Betty having gone from the side of the cops to realizing, wait a sec, maybe the cops are on the wrong side, and at least seeking sanctuary from, if not actually siding with, the perceived terrorists. Well, the very fact that Carlos saved Julian when Kira, I don't want to say she 
she lost her rational mind. But when she was facing the quandary of, he is my generation's Hitler, I have to kill him in his infancy, so he cannot become that man. Well, and I love how they brought up the Hitler question directly. Yes. They didn't dance around it. It's like, what would you do if? And at this point, Carlos knows this isn't a theoretical question for Kira. He's in the loop on the whole time travel aspect. And there's the, well, you know he's going to be the bad guy, but he's also an 18-year-old kid. This isn't that guy yet. Yes. And can he change? And I like how Alec had pushed back when he realized Julian was getting tortured of, if you think I, Alec, can change, why can't Julian? Yes. It brought up a lot of very good questions and gave them a lot of serious weight and didn't just... It didn't just ask them for the sake of asking them and then move on. Well, and I loved Kira's question at the end of the episode. What if my pointing a gun at him is what turned him into the monster? Well, and I liked his addressing that issue, Julian's addressing yes. that issue with Kira later in the, the season, where he's being pressured to, to kill her by his followers, and he's like, no. We strike through the mind. We're going through the ideas. We're not going for terror. We're not going for just killing people. Yeah. We're trying to do the right thing the right way. And I thought the uh, the travesty that she mentioned from the future, I forget which city it was in. New Corp Pemberton. New Pemberton, thank you. Uh, where, you know, tens of thousands were killed. We actually get to see that from his perspective, although she's kind of narrating that story, ironically. He actually kind of came out a bit of the hero in my eyes, because by this point, the people he was killing were, were literally implanted with chips, turned into drones, and they were not people as such. They were not savable, at least in his eyes, whether somebody with better tech could have saved him or not. Well, and that's the thing. She only knew part of the story. He was not the villain she thought he was. She was not the monster she thought he was, but... To me, he came up lacking because he had not found the equivalent of a Sonia, a doctor who could save these people. He had given up shy of trying everything and settled for, if we let them all die, that message will be stronger than. I, I think it was more than just the message because these people that were turned into drones were making the chips to turn people into drones. Yes. Yes. So his rationale was by killing these tens of thousands, he was saving untold millions later. Yes. Which, you know, is just a slightly higher math than the, if I kill the one Julian now, I save untold tens of thousands, or told tens of thousands, I suppose, later. It, the whole cost, not cost-benefit, but the, the consequences, the how does this play out, who knows for sure, certain, and in, in perspective. It was such a, a, a common theme and so well-addressed throughout the whole thing of you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, the wrong things for the right reason, there is no cut and dried, and who stands by their uh, principles, their ethical boundaries the strongest? Well, and the fact that now, if we go into next season, if we just pick up where we are right now, what we have is Julian, a idealistic young man with allegedly a huge army crowd of followers who will listen, and hopefully what we have is Carlos at his back who knows the dangers he could pose if he follows the, quote, wrong path. 
trying to caution him and trying to help guide him to the right path. So Carlos being informed by Kira of the dangerous potential might be the best possible advisor Julian could have been given. Well, also not only just knowing the potential dangers, but also having one of the stronger moral compasses on the show. Yes. Although, ironically, I would say the two that stuck to their principles the best are Julian and Alec. Yes. And again, I love the parallels they drew, which Alec appreciated more than Julian, when Julian's like, well, they're saying I have this destiny and all this, and Alec's like, yeah, I kind of know. It's like, well, how? Yes. Yeah. he's in the same position. I mean, they're both flip sides of the same coin. There are different factions trying to, to manipulate them and steer them. With Alec, it's 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 Kellogg at times. It's it's Kira at times. With with Julian, it's Travis and Sonya primarily. And Julian knows he's already been played by Kagami, so he's gotten a little wise to this game. Well, and the uh, the Julian Kagami thing is an awesome chicken and egg to me. Who inspired who? Who is the mentor of who? Well, and how come if Theseus is Julian, and that's the, the, the founder of the message, the, the movement and stuff, why is Kagami such a big deal? Why are they all following Kagami? You know, why was he the one going back in time? You know, I guess part of it is who was in jail for what, etc. Well, that's the thing. Theseus was in jail, and Kagami was his follower, who was on the outside and led them while Theseus was in jail. Okay, so that makes sense. And... Because Kagami was the one who did the bombing, he was going to the execution, therefore yes. he was in the position to get sent back, Yes. whereas Theseus was not. Yes. Okay. Again, it's... But Kagami, once he's back in time, inspires Theseus to commit the crimes that puts Theseus in jail to inspire young Kagami to grow up to be the person who commits the crimes that puts him in... There's no simple chicken and egg in this situation, and that's part of why I... I want to know what got the whole thing kind of kicked off to begin with. Because we're getting further backstory on future events that kick everything off in the past. It's it's something that, if you try to chart it out, I think you can. I think they play fair. I think they play consistent. Which amazes me. Yes. Uh, back in college, uh, a friend and I, because I've always been huge on time travel, uh, actually tried to, to you know kind of work through it. It's like, how would this play out? Just as a science fiction a thought experiment, can it make sense? And the way it always worked out in my mind was you've got this one timeline. The minute somebody bounces back in time, you've kind of pushed down to a new thing. You've, you've just inherently changed something. Not drastically, not better, not worse. It's just different. Okay? You've, you've caused ripples in the pond. You've essentially paved over that line. You can go back further and create another pavement on top of that, another layer on the road. But you can fundamentally never get, you can never unring that bell. You yeah. can never get back to the pristine place. Just, it's impossible because if you treat travel in the fourth dimension of time, it, take take three-dimensional space, get it down to a point, have that point as a timeline, that fourth dimension. Travel in the fourth dimension essentially gives you a fifth dimension, which is uh, uh, perpendicular to that timeline. So you've now got, instead of one timeline, a, a, a layer beneath it, like I said, um, you can't double back on itself. You can never undo that travel um well one of the things that amazed me in this show is in the pilot kira remembers her son complaining about his breakfast oh yeah a random out of context memory it's like okay they shot that so we could see the video footage in the recording okay get it uh-huh 
And so we could see the cute little kid complaining about breakfast. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's it's backstory. It's slice of life backstory to give her the angst of, oh, I've left my son. And slice of life is all we needed. But then later we actually get that sh- that footage, that shot, that scene fully played out as if it had been shot just for that episode at the end of the second season. And it perfectly fits, and it's perfectly in context, and it's so beautifully done that you feel like they filmed it just for that. I would love to know how much they had thought through some of this and how much they may have shot a little extra at the beginning for these scenes later. In other words, some of these future scenes that we're getting around the time of the execution and stuff certainly are new footage. Some of it may not be, particularly with the husband and stuff. I don't know. I, I'd love to have some behind-the-scenes knowledge of, of how they, they shot this, how they put it together, both in terms of the writing and the video production. Yeah. Because, again, the writing, some of it's like, hey, we had this one scene, I wonder if we can reshoot, reuse, etc. The kid would have aged a year or two in that time, but I, I'm willing to bet we could compare the, the, the two shots, and they'd be identical, I'd guess. I, I haven't actually done the comparison. It, it was beautifully done. And that's part of the high production values of this show that have me saying, you can watch the episodes again and again and just consistently find more in it. Like not seeing the tattoo the first time I watched it in that handshake and then catching it in the marathon and going, oh, wow, they played fair on that. They warned me he was a freelancer. The question is, if we go back to the first season... And that's one of the things I am wondering. Will we see that with Chen? Yeah. You know, how far, how how early in the process did they know some of this and think some of this up? And, and how well did they do? Because I'm willing but to give them credit. They may have thought about it that far back. The other thing is, these tattoos are so tiny in the crevice between the fingers. If they put it in a place that would be easy to miss. Yeah. Um, and hard to see. It, it literally has to be a close-up on the hand. And I loved how that played out with Alec having seen, you know, uh, uh, Escher for a while and then realizing, oh, wait a sec, you're one of them. It It's one of those that they play fair, they don't cheat, yet things turn on a dime as things get revealed. And they did a really good job ending episodes on not a dun-dun-dun, aha, reveal, but a, hey, wait, where's that going to lead? Those yeah. two know each other? Wait a sec, what's going on here? Well, and they warned us early in the season with a line from Alec that Kira was going to reach a point where she had to decide between the time travel device and her family in the future and someone in the here and now. Yeah, and Alec was the one that put that, that question to her, and he got an answer, unfortunately, didn't like it. Yeah. And it's one of those that I think once she made the decision, and once it sank in what she had done. The moment it sank in what she had done, literally she was chasing after the device, taking breathtaking risks to get it. And the moment she had her hand and stood up and realized what she had done, the look on her face of, no, I didn't just do that. That's one of those, I think, if she could have rewound two minutes back. Yeah. She'd have made a different decision in hindsight. Yeah. But that's, again, the consequences. And wait, you can't... She couldn't do that time travel. Whether Alec just did or not, don't know. Well, and the other thing is, she knew what would happen as a result 
of the decision the person holding the time travel machine before it went flying wildly yeah. made was you know she knew you know that not gonna end well for you if you do that well it's and it's the other person didn't interesting again how many factions we had going this season because we had kira and the police we had liberate that split in half at one point later reconcile we had the the present day followers of, of Theseus, which is a separate faction entirely, although at times allied with Travis, at times maybe not. Exactly. I was going to say, Travis tried to co-op them and guide them, and one of the things we haven't even touched on, and I think it was an interesting part of Julian's growth, that I almost want to say it was when Julian went from being a boy thrown into a man's prison to becoming a man, is oh, yeah. he goes in there and Sonia and Travis and their factions are fighting over who is going to protect him in prison. And I'm almost tempted to do a body count on how many people died in that battle to, to that protect was, him. That was part of what was about the first couple of episodes. All the stuff in the prison. Who's going to protect Julian? Who, who gets that privilege? Yes, yes. Who has to die for the other team to get it? And all this, the infighting between the two factions of Liberate was so front and center, such uh, so well done, such a and big deal. Julian was never in danger of even a scratch during those fights. During those fights, I think he was legitimately in danger if he didn't have the protection. Presumably. But all of that in the first couple episodes was such a big deal. And then, okay, let's push that aside. You know, Travis has escaped. Let's go figure out who the mole is and focus on that and another plot line or two for three episodes. Yeah that having established that and then just kind of pushing it away for a little bit, and granted, a few weeks later, they get right back to it. Same thing with the whole witch hunt during some of those episodes. Gardner going after Kira of, oh, you're a mole, you're a spy, you're not who you say you are. He gets taken out by the freelancers, and then it's like three episodes before anyone says, hey, where has he been? I think it's been a few weeks since but we've seen you've it. you've got to admit, when they found him... It really showed how long that plot line had been on the back burner. I think they, they played fair with that, and I enjoyed that aspect. A little gross, but it was okay. I love how odor-protecting trunks apparently are in cars. Yeah. Like, well, I wonder what's going on with this car. They pop the trunk and they're like, oh, jeez, the smell. And then they close the trunk. Oh, that's not so bad. And by, oh, jeez, the smell, we're five feet back saying, oh, jeez, the smell. Yeah, it was... Yeah, it was interesting. It was also a little questionable how the other cop just dives into the, the jacket pocket and just happens to find the USB drive so quickly. Yes, yes. But they did some some good stuff with those plot lines, even if they put some of them in the back burner a little longer than I would have liked. I don't know if they could have just flipped the episode order of a few things to smooth it out or not. It made it feel not quite as tight as the first season. But we had all of those factions in play. We had Escher. We had the Freelancers. There were so many more threads this season. There were. There was a lot more going on. And it was all well done. It was a far more complex tapestry. It was far more complicated than simply figure out what Liberate come back here to do and prevent them from doing it. Yeah. And that's all I expected of season one. And in season one... One of the things that visually I loved was in the pilot, Kira and uh, the family are in the park with the uh, sculpture of the six. And then at the very end of the finale episode, we have the sculpture that's an eight 
the building blows up, and the beam comes crashing through and turns it into the six. Yeah. Well, speaking of visuals, there were a couple of things they did, both first season and certainly second, that were really stunning. There was the scene at the beginning of second season when the mayor's gotten shot. She's there. She just looks around, gets a 360-degree view, recreates the crime scene using her her future tech, um, and they, they did just a wonderful job playing all that out. There was a scene early on by the lake where time... They do a time-lapse sort of a thing, and suddenly it's 60 years in the future, and you can see how things have evolved. Yeah. The other one I loved was in the Ouroboros killing episode, where she's in the parking garage, the trunk's getting loaded into the car. She's like, hey, wait a sec. She rewinds that footage and does a heat trace back on the the recording, because apparently it's always on. Yes. It's just not visible. It's recording it, though, which is smart. And she's like, wait a sec, that he's got somebody in that trunk. You know, it was one of those uh, where, again, the use of the future tech was fun. They played fair with that stuff. The visuals were really well done. Um, they're not using it as magic tech to solve problems. I liked how her suit got turned off a few times. Yeah, that so was interesting. The concept that the freelancers are from further down the timeline, again, making me think her son could be one of the founders of this. Um, it's, it's well thought out and well executed. You know, I'm not going to say it's, it's absolutely perfect or anything, but it's, it's surprisingly close. It's just such wonderful science fiction and it's genuinely science fiction. They're not well throwing s- monsters at me and calling it science fiction. They're not relying on what feel like cheesy gimmicks. They're not falling back on formulas I feel like I've seen a thousand times. They're, they're, they're science fiction in terms of they've got time travel, they've got the future computer tech, they've got the, the viruses, the, those things. They've also got the speculative fiction. You know, they're doing hard science fiction in terms of raising the questions of the grandfather paradox. You know... Can you really change the past or not? Is it predestination or not? And the the speculative fiction on the direction of society, questions about privacy, ethical issues, they're really, it's like you said, a thinking man's show. Well, and they're remembering their own continuity and episodes in terms of when they need a power source late in season two, Somebody, Escher, has funded a project that wasn't going to be in use for another 30 years, but the scientist who Kira did not arrest back in season one is someone Escher knew about, and so he's gone and funded. But even that funding was also uh, uh, foreshadowed when Kellogg was trying to get another energy guy to, to... you know, go with him and his funding. And he's not, oh, Escher's paying me. It's like, I've, I've gone elsewhere. Yeah. And it showed that, that Kellogg was, his agenda, which was out there to, to make money and whatnot already, he was being outmaneuvered by somebody else. Who's going from the same playbook. But it raises the question as to, did Escher travel in time? When did he travel in time from? Yes, he's Alex's father, but who's his father? You know, it... it there are a lot of questions left to be answered. and Well, technically, he's a Saddler who says he's Alex's father. 
you you're thinking he may not be. I'm thinking we don't have hard proof. And we had the photo. Okay. But not genetic proof. And at this point, young Alec was saying, but I have genetic proof that Jason's my father. It's like, no, he's a 99% match because he's your son. Right. And I'm just thinking that Escher was messing with people's minds an awful lot. I'm not sure I wanted to trust Escher is all I'm saying. And I think there's cause for that. I'll, I'll agree he's a saddler. But there's... The way he put Emily into Alec's life as a protection thing, which begs the question of where she's from, where did she get trained? She's a hell of a fighter. But was he protecting his son or his grandfather to make sure he was born? Fair enough. Either way, it's similar to presumably what older Alec may have done with Kira's husband to plant him in her life. And it also puts a different spin on uh, her husband's infidelity, you know, because maybe he doesn't really love her. Yep. There's just so much in this show. It's it's a deep show with a lot of potential. It plays fair, and a lot of sci-fi shows that I've enjoyed, Stargate, Star Trek, uh, even certainly Quantum Leap falls into this. They're fun, they're enjoyable, they're great episodes. Sometimes they have arcs that build up, but rarely do they have something that really, when you stop and, and look at it and analyze it, holds water and, and stays structurally intact the way this does. So, mm-hmm. while I would have liked a little of the pacing to be a little better than not to have backburnered a few stories for a little bit, those were not structural flaws. They were just me getting a little impatient, I think. They were trying to juggle a lot of things. It was how much they had on their plate, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really curious where they're going to go in the next season. I think it could go up to a whole new level with multiple continuums, potentially. Um and they've got a lot of, of major questions to answer as to what's happening with these people who've been captured, what's going on with the farm, with, with Julian, his mom, uh, Carlos and Betty, what happened with Alec? Yeah. Where did he go? Yeah. Um, so I, I want to see where it goes. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. This well, is a show I'm... that I don't think is getting as much attention and exposure as it should, hence why we're doing these episodes. Exactly. I wish it was getting more exposure. I wish Comic-Con had had a panel for it, had had something for it. I, I think Sci-Fi is supporting this in so much as they're airing it, but they're not really pushing it. And I think that's short-sighted of them because it's... a. Pro- probably the best thing they've got on right now. You know, I I enjoyed Defiance. We watched all of it. It was what I call warm, fuzzy, light-hearted sci-fi it's by popcorn. comparison. It's popcorn sci-fi. Yes. It's light, it's fun, it's enjoyable, but it's not deep. No. And this was the opposite end of that spectrum. What's fun, though, is while it's got that depth, it's also got a surface-level veneer that you can just kind of skate over and just enjoy it at that level, too. Yes. I don't think you've got to get all the ins and outs to, to, to really say, oh, this is fun. I think to really get it, you do, but I think... I think you can tune in each week and solve the crime of the week and be happy. Yeah. Just tune in for the procedural and you can be happy or get all the threads and what's going on and be really happy. It's a show, though, that I think is worth, if it's on Netflix or Hulu or wherever, marathoning from the beginning. It's only 13 episodes of the second season. It was only 13 for the first. That sounds about right. Maybe 10. Anyways. Very short seasons by comparison to most shows, but very good seasons. But increasingly standard length for for some of these types of shows, you know, um, 13 episode uh, seasons are not 
that unusual. And it, it plays well because it gives them time to do a good arc, time to go a little bit, not not have to do just the arc, a little, little beyond that, but not so much that they get lost in the weeds. Yeah, well, and they're not trying to make sure they put out 22 or 23 episodes so they don't do filler episodes. That That's my point. They don't get lost in the weeds. Yeah. They don't waste the time. They don't get indulgent. Um, I don't know that there was really much they could have cut from second season or first season for that matter. And certainly I don't think anything that I, I feel they should have cut. Whereas any 20 episode, 22, 24 episode season, there's usually a couple episodes like, you know, it was fun, it was good, but did it have to be there? Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, third season. It'll be sometime in 2014. Um, I'm probably going to do the same thing next time of, of uh, wait for the marathon and just go through it that way. It plays really well for me in that uh, format. I really think it's stronger as a marathon, but I'm impatient. I like it. So I watch it week by week. I get everything I can out of it. And it's a show that stands up to multiple viewings. Well, that's what I like. Because with you watching it week by week, then when we marathon it, you're like, hey, pay attention here. It's like, okay. Yeah. I there, think I would have missed some other stuff if, if you hadn't have been doing that. There were one or two times during the marathon where, you know, we would have a meal while we're watching and stuff. And I'd be snapping my finger going, nope, nope, look up at the screen now. You have to see this. You have mm -hmm. to... Notice as he closes the refrigerator door that he's hallucinating, you know. Well, I had missed the first hallucination of Chan, because like you said, we were eating while we were watching some of this. Yeah. Um, but fun yeah. stuff. Definitely recommend the show. Uh, really enjoyed the second season. Um, in some ways, like I said, not quite as tight as the first season, but in some ways much better than the first season, because it was such an expansive canvas. So many things were layered on. So much was going on. And it maintained the, the fluidity, the focus in terms of the big picture and the, the, the throughput of, of story um, and ended on a really strong note. Well, and I just can't wait to see what they do next season. I mean, I, I honestly, I will be happy, I think, wherever they go. If they go to the past or the future, I will be happy. I am cautiously optimistic in so much as I can see where if they're not careful, they could reinvent the show into something it's not. There is some potential danger for the writing crew at this point, but given everything they have done, I have no reason to doubt them. I am definitely looking forward to where they go. I can, I don't have any, they must go this way for me to be happy. But there, you know, I'd like to see what happens with Alec. I'd like to see what goes on in the future. I'd like to see if we get multiple consumers. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to see, but I didn't anticipate some of what we got this time that I really enjoyed. Well, so if if they can keep up the quality, I'll be happy. When they first reassembled the time travel device, there was a part of me that had my heart set on him doing something specific with it. And by the end of the season, I realized my heart was no longer set on one path. I was open to other possibilities. And if he goes back to try and save Emily, I'm good with that. If he goes to the future to find out, am I really... To meet himself, yeah. You know, what am I really like? Why did I do these things? I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm open to the possibilities they've left open, which to me says they've done a good job writing it. What's interesting is everybody in the show, for the most part, has some kind of agenda, major, minor. You know, I, Betty doesn't have a huge agenda. She has one, though. 
You know, she wants to be with Carlos. She may not get that. She wants to be a good cop. May not get that. You know what I mean? They're, yeah. Everybody has their own mindset, their own, their own agenda. But it's fascinating how some of these agendas shift, how the alliances shift, and how, you know, you may think going into an episode, well, this is the direction people they go on, and they just do, not in about face, but the situation changes such. Well, in season one, Betty would have done anything to protect Carlos. And by season two, there was a point at which she wasn't sure because Carlos was so anti-liberate that he was as open-minded as she thought he ought to be. So she wasn't as sure she would do anything for Carlos. Well, there was a couple of times she didn't do things for Carlos this season. And that was an interesting Betty having to evaluate Betty's priorities and where's Betty at. And it goes towards the growth of the characters. Mm -hmm. The characters we have at the beginning of the first season versus the end of the first season, start of the second, and where we're at at the end of the second season. Things have changed. The the events have grown the characters in certain ways, and they've, in some cases, rebelled against it in others. You know, And seeing those alliances shift, seeing that status quo continue to evolve, and not really for the most part, ever solidified to just, it's it's always going to be this way. Yeah. You know, it's not the Federation versus the Klingons, or, you know, whatever the case may be for, you know... Uh, but the uh, core of the characters has remained the same. Betty is still the good-hearted, I don't want to say naive person she was, but you she's know... She's still Betty, but she's a older, wiser Betty. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun how they can, like I said, evolve the character, yet stay true to who they are and were. Yeah. Um, and I think it gets to where characters, where they're at now, would do would react to the same situations they had at the beginning differently. Yeah. But not inconsistently. But believably so because of what's happened in the intervening time. So it'll be uh, be fun to see where this this series goes. I'm hoping it's not too late into to 2014 before we get the third oh, season. Me too. I I envy the Canadians that they tend to get continuum at least a month before we do because I, like I said, I'm a bit impatient for the show. I enjoy watching it. I would like to see Showcase make a push into the United States. So would I. As a, as a network channel or uh, internet channel, whatever. Because uh, everything I've seen through them, I've which isn't much, I'll admit, a lot of it's, you know, continuum, uh, they're doing good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we've watched some other shows that originated out of Canada. Flashpoint's a good example. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. So, anything else? Or does that pretty much wrap it up? I think that wraps it up. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.